God, I thank you so much for, um, for this new year. And Rob is right. It's, it's, it's just another day. Uh, it's the, it's a new day on the calendar. And, uh, as we dive into your presence, we know that you are as present today as you were any other day in our lives. And tomorrow you will be just as present. And Father, we know that uh, your presence is a constant with us. That you are real, that you are actually here in this space with us. And that matters. It should matter. It should matter in, in who we are and how we live and the things that we pursue and the things that we flee from. It should matter in the way that we pursue you. And so, God, I pray that this space today would not be a theological exercise of some truth that a lot of us affirm, but, Father, uh, um, instead a heart check back into what is most real, what is more real than any other real that we uh, know or see or experience in our lives, and that is the reality of your presence there at the beginning there throughout the course of our lives, there in the end. Father, help us to see how this matters for us today and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this might take some of you by surprise, but uh, in my younger years, I had quite the imagination. I know, shocking. Um, I grew up in a generation that, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what your generation did with TV, but my generation liked to stop and look at the camera a lot. You know, we had movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and even in shows like Saved by the Bell, Zach Morris would always have his side where he'd look at the camera and start talking about whatever's happening in life. I grew up with movies like The Truman Show, and so it built into my psyche. I think I actually believed this long before I ever turned on the television, but built into my psyche was the reality that the cameras were always rolling. Um, and so if, if, I could, if you could go back and watch Young Matt, you would probably be thoroughly entertained because Young Matt would do things like while he is stirring the orange juice from concentrate. Did anyone have that? Orange juice from concentrate. Do they still do yeah, they do? That's cool. Yeah, so we did orange juice from concentrate as a kid. Just frozen OJ, and you add water, and you stir for what felt like an eternity. And I was convinced that there was a camera on the other side of the pane of, of the kitchen window, and I would sit there, and I would give instructions on how to make the perfect orange juice from concentrate. And I'd just be sitting there, talking to the people, talking to my fans who are watching me on the other side of the windows. I'm stirring the concentrate. Now, you want to make sure that there's no lumps in your concentrate. See, this is lumpy. That's no good, folks. We've got to keep stirring, because that's how you make the perfect orange juice from concentrate. And I was convinced that... When I was doing minute tasks like, uh, like vacuuming, all of a sudden it would hit me that, wait, this is not a boring task for seven-year-old Matt. There's an audience, and so they're probably bored because I'm just not even making straight lines, and so I better just da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I, you know, get a little laugh from the audience, and then I would just go about my vacuuming. Or I was thoroughly convinced that we, we had wood paneling, down in my room in uh, in the basement, full wood paneling. And uh, they had the little fake knots in the paneling. 1,000% convinced that at least 50% of those knots were cameras. 
And so I'd be down in my room and I'd just get yelled at and get sent to my room and I'd go downstairs and I'd just have my Ferris Bueller moment where I'm like, you know, mom thinks I don't know what's going on right now, but in all actuality, I'm fully aware of what, and I would just have it out with the wood paneling. And, and you laugh, but you know, I know there's a lot of attic theater people in here and so I know, we're, Josh, come on. Right? Yeah, thank you. All right? I know I'm not the only one who grew up with this reality that the cameras were always rolling. Now, of course, I, uh, I, I grew up and I realized shortly as a you know, young teenage boy in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, nobody cares about my life. And so I know that there were no cameras rolling, and so eventually I, I cut the act. But I really did. I grew up a, a lot of my years thinking that there was a live studio audience somewhere who was entertained by the life of Matthew Brian Vowinkel. And so eventually I gave up the Truman Show act. But the fact is that, as I look back on my life, there always was somebody who was watching. And we know that reality from a Christian perspective, even though I didn't have a live TV audience, even though I didn't have people that tuned in every day to see if Matt was going to make the famous orange juice from Concentrate, there were, there was an audience. There was an audience of one, because from the moment that I was born, God was looking down at my life watching me live it before him. And that's a sobering thought to think, but it's one that I think we oftentimes don't think about. The reality that our lives, whether it's in the moments that we're playing for the cameras or in the moments that we really hope and pray that there isn't a camera, that he's always there. That he's always present with us. As real as as real as this is, as real as real as this is, in the same way that that this what is this, an amp, a monitor? What, what is this? Huh? Speaker? Sure, that, okay. As real as this thing is that should impact my life, right? I mean, it's, it's here. It's physically present. It's going to, I can't get around the reality of it. Now, we look at this and we say, this is more real than, than God? I realize that we're in space and time, and so to say that he is present, it's something that we intellectually, it's something that we theologically uh, affirm, but the reality is that his presence should have more weight, should have more determining value, should make more of an impact in who I am and how I live than this well-crafted podium, or this thing that you call a speaker, Just because I can't see him, just because I can't reach out and touch him in the same way, does not mean that his presence should have no less of an impact on who I am and how I live. And so we could have a Sunday where once again we we affirm the, the presence of God. Where we look through the scriptures and we affirm all the texts that affirm the reality that he is here. And we could say amen and bless it and go back to our lives. But I hope, I pray that today is more than just a theological exercise for us to all sit around and affirm something that most of us already believe is true. Because the fact is, if the factual presence, if the actual presence of our Creator in our lives does not have more of an impact than podium or speaker or any other thing that we can see or smell or taste or touch, then the fact is that we probably don't believe in the reality of His presence in the way that we should. 
And so this is crucial for us to revisit. It wasn't long ago that I was preaching a sermon on the uh, omnipresence of God. In fact, I went back and I was like, oh man, I used that. I should probably use a different text. I should probably use, oh man, this is a lot of the same. It was only like a year and a half ago. And yet this is a reality that should impact our reality every single moment of every single day. Does it? Does it? And if not, why? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Pastor Chris already did a fantastic job. If you remember last week, the last 15 minutes, he stole my sermon. He did. He stole my I texted him afterwards. I was like, thanks for preaching my message, jerk face. But uh, seriously, I mean, if you want just a solid exegetical overview of, of, the, uh, of, of the presence of God and what that means and, and where it is in Scripture, go back and listen to Chris's message last week and just... Just chew on that 15 minutes. It was so solid. Um, so I, I want to do more of a biblical overview because I feel like the, uh, the solid exegesis was already taken care of for me last week. But, but the reality is that this is a reality that we find all throughout the pages of Scripture. And in it, I hope that we see that when it comes to God's presence, God has designed us to live in His presence and desires us to live in light of his presence. There are three, I mean, there are so many different ways in which his, his design and his desire impact who we are and how we live. We're going to look at three, because that's what you do in sermons. You look at three. Um, so we'll do that. But first, I just, I just want us to walk through scripture and understand that, that this is more than just a, a token spiritual truth or some theological reality that we affirm. But rather, this is the story of scripture. This is the beginning, the middle, the end. This is the, this is the crescendo at the end. It's the presence of God with His people. This is what He has wanted all along. This was His design for us. This was His desire for us, was for Him to impact our lives and how we live. And so we see this right away in the garden, right? What, what is His, what is His design? What is His desire? Well, He designed us to be in His space. To, to like really, like, hi, I'm here. Let's walk together in the cool of the day. Let's spend time together in one another's presence. Again, I know we bring this up a lot, but, but again, just envision that reality. Every day where you feel like your, your prayers are hitting the ceiling or your Bible reading is just some, some rote act that you're doing, imagine being in the actual presence of God. That matters. And that's what he designed us for. That's what he desires for us. And we know that sin screwed that up. We know that we had perfection and that perfection was lost. And yet, what I would argue is that God's design for us and his desire for us to be in his presence and to be changed in light of his presence, that did not change with sin. I understand that our circumstances change, that I don't wake up and walk in our 20, 24 foot garden with God in the cool of the day. I don't do that now here. And yet his design of Matt Voenkel, his desire for Matt Voenkel and for you has not changed. And he makes that known throughout Scripture in, in way after way after way after way. We could point to countless places where God makes his presence known. And yet, just, just think of a few, right? So, 
Go with me to Exodus in your minds. I'll turn there. That would be a lot of reading. But God's people are just brought out of Egypt in, in some of the most miraculous ways ever, right? God, God displays his power. God displays his thereness in a way that people cannot deny and then brings them out to Mount Sinai. And what does he do? He consecrates the people. He says, make your heart ready. Purify yourselves because what? I am going to, I'm going to come down on that mountain. I'm going to make my presence known. And he covers this great mountain with the cloud of his presence and with thunder and lightning. And he speaks from the mountain in such a way that the people are so terrified that even though they are invited up to hear his voice, they run in the opposite direction and they say, no, you, Moses, you go. You go on up ahead. The people run the other way and Moses trudges up into the clouds, it says in Exodus 20. How beautiful of a picture is that? May we be that kind of people. But God desires from the very get-go to say, nope, you are mine and I am with you and I am going to make my presence known among you. And then you skip a little bit forward to Exodus 40 and you have the scene of, of the tabernacle. Where God erects this, this tent of meeting, so to speak, and, and in the same way, he covers it with a cloud during the day, and he fills it with fire at night, and it's at the center of the camp of all of God's people, so that at any time, day or night, they can look at that place. Not that he wasn't present with them in their tents, not that he wasn't present with them wherever they were going in the wilderness, but to prove a point of the fact that I am there, that I am with you. And this became a place of communion, it became a place of meeting, where Moses met face to face with God within this tent. How beautiful of a picture. God didn't have to do that. But on the mountain, in the tabernacle, and again, as we see in 2 Chronicles 7, I think, it's probably in my notes, where God fills Solomon's temple. With his glory. The same thing, right? Now the people have a city. Now they have walls. And now their great king builds this amazing temple. And God comes and fills it with his presence in such a way where only the high priest could walk into the Holy of Holies and be in his actual presence. But at any time, the people could have looked to the temple. They could have gone into the place where the common folk could go and know that God is there behind that place. Again, no less with them in in their own homes, no less with him wherever they were going but proving a point of his presence again and again, declaring to his people, I am, I am a God who is there with you. And so we see these three instances outside of the garden, outside of our, our glorious design that has been destroyed by sin. And yet God's desire to be with his people, God's desire to be present with us is no different. It has not changed. And these are just three instances in the Old Testament that we can turn to. And we learn later that all of these three instances are made to point to the most glorious appearance of his presence that we find in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? God with us. Emmanuel. God coming to dwell with us. And we read about this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. John continues in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here we see the clearest picture since the garden of a God who is present. Who though he was there in the beginning and present every step along the way, even after mankind ignored him and his ways, he reveals himself fully and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ to all mankind. Both to once again reveal himself and his ways, but also to provide a way for all to be in right relationship with him, both now and forever. We see this this gracious gift given to all who place their faith in Christ as their perfect Savior and eternal Lord. And so here we have the, the fullness of God on display, his heart fully revealed, and it's revealed in him coming to man, dwelling with man, dwelling with those who he created. And for what purpose? To unite. Read the high priestly prayer in John 17 and you'll see the heart of the Father that just as Christ is in God and God is in Him and the Spirit is in Him and there's this oneness taking place, He desires to be one with us, to fill us fully and perfectly so that we will be one with Him. And Jesus accentuates this this promise that He gives to us in Matthew 28, which Chris read last week. That even though Jesus was going away, he left us with a promise and saying, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He says, man, I'm going away, but but I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I am going to reassure you of the fact that I am present with you. That I've always been with you. And I'm always going to be here with you. A promise that he keeps through the Holy Spirit who is more than present with us, but dwelling within us. Kind of a step up from the temple, huh? Step up from the tabernacle or a, or a big mountain filled with a cloud. Instead, the, the living God, the one who made us, the one who designed us, now indwells within us. Now takes residency within us. Think about that for a second. Beyond the theological truth that we affirm, beyond the proof text that I'm about to read for this reality, think about the reality of the fact that the living God, if you have placed your faith in His Son, in His death, in His life and resurrection, and He has become your Lord and Savior, the living God takes up residency within you. He indwells you. Does that move you in the slightest? Does that move your meter at all? Church, the living God, in you, filling you, flowing out of you. How beautiful. First John 4.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Ephesians 1.13 affirms this reality as well. I want to turn there for a second because there's another verse that I love that I didn't put in my notes. 
First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. There it is. Cool. Um, Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Which he continues at the end of chapter 2 in saying, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I would conclude maybe a step up from the garden. The reality that the one who made you to walk with Him, now through faith, indwells us. Lives within us. All until that glorious day when our king returns to permanently establish his kingdom, which we read about in Revelation 1, uh, 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from the dwelling... Uh, blah, 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 sorry. Out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying... Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what we see here when we crack open Genesis and we read all the way to the very end in the book of Revelation is the reality of God's presence. The reality of His design for us as His people to dwell in His midst, to be in His presence. And His desire for us to be changed by His presence. Until the day when all things are changed, all things are made new, and we are with Him once again to dwell with Him, to walk with Him, to be with Him for all of eternity. This is a constancy of the Christian faith, and it's more than just a a, a theological truth that we ascribe to. This is, from beginning to middle to end, a reality that is supposed to be a life-changing, life-changing, altering, worship-inducing reality in our lives. He is here, right now, in you, around you, with you. The God of the universe, the one who made you, the one who came to die for you, His Spirit now indwells you and seals you until the day you are with Him again. Let's pray. (laughs) What more can I say? I'll say three things because I got to do those three points. Either this matters or it doesn't. Either this matters to you or it doesn't. Either this impacts your day, your life, your job, your marriage, your, your work as a student. The way that you husband, the way that you wife, the way that you are a son or daughter, either it impacts the space that you are because he is there, or it doesn't. 
There's three ways that I want to look at real quick. But first, again, just to keep in mind this reality that we just looked at from Genesis to Revelation, David sums up in the text that was already read today in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no getting away from the reality that God is here. And so how should this impact us? Number one, his presence should impact, should impact our pursuit of sin. It's funny how quickly sin loses its shine when there's someone else in the room. Um, as I think back to a younger Mad Vonkle, heck, if I think to an older Mad Vonkle, and I think of the life that I live, i got to tell you, I, the, the times that I didn't imagine a camera rolling uh, were not the times when I found myself in my darkest moments. When you think of those, uh, those sins that you desire to keep hidden, those, desire, those sins that you have that you desire just to keep as a part of your past, you don't want to look at it anymore. Those things that make up who you are that you hope no one else sees, he was there. He's there in the midst of that. He sees that. He watches what you watch. He listens to what you listen to. He hears what you say. He knows what you think. The one who made you, the one who loved you enough to die for you, the perfect, holy, unsearchable, great God that we worship, that we should stand in awe and tremble before, sees you when you are at your worst. Now, arguably, God has never really been great at being just simply a sin deterrent. See garden, see tabernacle, see temple, see pillar, see cloud, see miracle after miracle, see Jesus, see Holy Spirit. And so if we just simply make this about God's up there and he's watching you, so you better watch out. I think we've missed something. Because scripture does not point to God being present to simply just look at over our shoulder and be like, hey, watch it, buddy. There's something bigger. There's something more beautiful. It doesn't exclude. But that is not the whole of what this is talking about. And yet his presence should impact our pursuit of sin or lack thereof. It should make a difference in the way we view what we view, what we watch, what we do, what we say, who we are, regardless of whether or not the boss is looking over our shoulder, or our wife, or our mommy and daddy. It should matter. Because we live our lives, not before this audience, But we live our lives and we will give an account of our lives before him, the one who is with us, the one who is always there. And that should matter. That should be a reality that paints a picture for us as we live our lives. Right? And so his presence should matter in relationship to our pursuit of sin. 
In his book, The Joy of Fearing God, Bridges puts it this way. The person who fears God is conscious that God is aware of every minute detail, every mundane activity in his or her life. Such awareness serves as a check on temptation to sin. This doesn't mean living in constant fear that God is going to get us. It does mean that because we are aware of his all-seeing eye and all-hearing ear, we live in a way that pleases him as he sees what we do and hears what we say. The book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 4, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. And so in his presence, we should realize that we are never truly alone. That nothing that we do is ever truly hidden. Because everything we do is done before the one who is always present. And he is the one that we will stand before. And so this should drastically impact our approach to sin that still lingers in our lives. And it should cause us to want to, uh, to, to work through it. To rid our lives of it. To be an ever-purified, ever-cleansed, ever-holy vessel before the one who desires to use us. Flowing out of this, we find the second thing that his presence should impact. His presence should impact our pursuit of grace. In 1 John 1-2 we read, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, again, our wrath taker and our reconciler. The one who takes the punishment but also makes our relationship right with God. He is our propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So as we wrestle with sin on this side of heaven, we're going to lose battles. Right? As we continue to, to fight sin, we will lose battles from time to time. Where we give in. Where we give in to temptation. Where we give in to sin and its lures. And when we lose those battles, we will be tempted to stay hidden in the shadows, to throw fig leaves over ourselves and to go hide in the corner and just hope that God doesn't keep his normal time of walking through the garden, right? That's something that's now a part of our fallen design. It is our desire to to hide our sin, to cover it, to make it seem better than what it is. And that will be a temptation when we lose those battles. But David already pointed to us in Psalm 139 that there is absolutely nowhere that we can go from his spirit. That there is absolutely nowhere that we can go from his presence. And so you, the worst of you on the worst days of you, has already been fully seen, fully known, fully realized by the one who made you. He was there. And in the same way that he came for us while we were still sinners and died for us, he calls us in the midst of his presence to run to his grace and not hide from it. To run to his presence and not hide from it. 
Because in the shadows, we're only going to find more sin, more death, more decay, more darkness. But when we run to him, when we are expose ourselves before the light of his love and his presence and his grace, it's there that we find redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. It's there that we find the righteousness of Jesus waiting for us in the loving arms of a father, just like the prodigal who runs home ready to embrace his son in robes of righteousness. That's what's waiting for us. And so his presence should not call, should not cause us to draw back in fear, but instead his presence should cause us to run to him in faith. To say, God, I've sinned. God, I have fallen. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your mercy. That's what he's there for. That's what he's always there for. And so while his presence should impact our pursuit of sin and our desire to abstain from it, when we fall, we must run to him. We must realize that we've never left him. And we must allow ourselves to be embraced in the loving, gracious arms of our Savior. Bridges writes of the one who understands this dual impact of God's presence and what it has on both sin and grace. He says, they're grateful for both the restraining influence and the assurance of forgiveness that comes from knowing they live constantly in his presence. And in this, they experience joy in fearing him. It's both and, right? And we need to recognize that. And we need to run to that reality. Third and final point we draw from his presence is that his presence should impact our pursuit of him. Seems obvious, right? That he's here. That should impact our our pursuit of his here-ness. The fact that he's with us, that he never leaves us. Again, I know it's really easy to draw on the reality of his presence as a, as a sin deterrent, but as we, as we look through the pages of scripture, as we look at the, the Genesis account, as we see the, the tabernacle and the temple and Christ coming and the spirit indwelling and even the reality of God with man at the end of all things, what we find again and again and again and again is God inviting us into a reality, one that we used to be able to see and one that we now take in faith of the reality of his presence and what that means for us. What that means because of how we were designed to live life with him and what that means as far as his desire for us to live in light of him. Again and again and again and again, we see God calling us to see him. To look up. To cast our eyes on him instead of what's around us. And it's something that we now have to do in faith, right? What, is, what does Hebrews say about faith? In 11.1, 1, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And some of you are saying, yeah, that's great. Let's talk about his presence. But where is he? Where is he as I face this? Where is he as I carry this? 
As I go to my job or I experience this, as I look at my marriage that looks like this, as I pray for my kids again and again and again, but I see this. As I look at my own life and it just seems like, man, I, I cannot kick these the, this stuff that I just hate about myself, that I would kill myself just to free myself from. And you tell me that God is present? Where? How could that be true? Well, we've seen today, with this as our foundation and our firm source of what is true, that it is. And I will be the first one to say, I will be the first one to say that it is a reality that I don't often experience. Or it's a, it's a reality that I oftentimes am tempted to, uh, to discredit or to reduce to just the fact that I know of, of theological knowledge right up there with all the other things that I learned at Bible college. I'm tempted to put it in that category of things that I know but do not really impact my day. Oh, church, we need to fight that in faith. I need to fight that in faith. You say, well, how? Tozer calls it the, the gaze of the soul. That would be one thing to do. Pick up, pick up the book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God and, and, and read, read that book. Read, read the hearts and the words of men beyond just the word, but men and women who hunger after God, who hunger after the reality of His presence in such a way where they are not going to stop at thick books of theological knowledge, but they are going to pursue the presence of the One who made them in such a way where they can taste and see that He is good and hear. And A.W. Tozer is one of those people who do it for me. And he calls it the gaze of the soul. Why? Because it's something that we do first when we look to Christ at salvation to be our Lord and our Savior. And it's something that we do every day thereafter where we stop and we quiet ourselves and we focus on the reality that he is here. And I get it. That sounds a lot like some kind of weird pop psychology, you know, find your center and just kind of, you know, just quiet yourself and just find yourself and just free yourself of all this stuff. And then just you're just I'm my best me. I'm my best me and I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and people like me. And no, I'm not talking about pop psychology. I'm I'm not I'm not talking about thinking your way into a new reality. I'm talking about looking at what is real in faith. Because when you wake up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, I say, man, it just feels like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. That's not real. When you wake up in the morning or when I wake up in the morning, I say, man, this Bible reading is just flat. Like I know it says the word of God is living and active and, and boy, it just feels dead to me today. That's not real. When it says, man, it seems like God is out dealing with a whole bunch of other things right now, but he's, he's not really concerned with what's going on in my life right now. Guess what? Fake news. It's not true. Because we can look to the word and we can bank on the reality of his presence and the fact that he loves you and cares about you and is right there with you. And faith, by definition, as we've seen in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And so we center ourselves on the reality that he is here. We spend so much time in our own lives, 
centering ourselves on the reality of our circumstances. On the reality of what's wrong or what's not right in our lives or what is broken beyond what we feel is beyond repair or what isn't the way that we want it to be. And we sit there holding this all day long, focusing on the reality of this. And what we need to do is stop and look with eyes of faith and realize that his hands are ever present underneath our hands, holding up the circumstances, the things that we go to that feel more real than Him being here in the midst of it. What are you going through right now that would not be easier for you to hold if you didn't consciously focus on the reality that the One who made you holds you in the midst of it? What could we not benefit by taking Time out of our everyday to stop and not just study the word, not just say a prayer, not just go through the religious activity, but to consciously set the gaze of our soul on the reality that the one who made us holds us, holds that situation, holds that marriage, holds that child that doesn't know him, holds that health situation, holds that death that you are still grieving, holds all of these things that you are holding, that you feel like you're holding on your own, but instead we stop and we consider the fact that he is present in it, with us, empowering us, filling us with what we need to stand in the midst of the hardest things that we could possibly go through on this side of heaven. He is there. He is present And if the reality of his presence does not infiltrate our pursuit of him, then it's going to stay in that category of, yeah, that's great. He's there, but I got to hold this. Yeah, that's great. He's there, but I got to figure this out. Yeah, that's great. He's there, but I got to deal with this. Yeah, that's great. He's there, but what about this? And the circumstances that surround us are going to be bigger than the God who surrounds us. May it never be so. But the only way that we can fight it is with faith. Yes, first, faith in the one who loved us enough to die for us and raise for us and welcome us into new life and life everlasting with him. But then a daily faith, a daily gaze of the soul to look at who we are in light of who he is, to look at where we are in light of where he is and to lay ourselves at his feet and say, God, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to, I don't know how these truths, I don't know how you are going to work this together for my good. I don't know how you are going to do these things that you said that you do, but I'm here in faith before you, setting my eyes on you and the reality of your presence. And I'm going to let that impact and dictate my life, my focus, my worship today more than any other thing that I'm holding We need to fix the gaze of our eyes. And speaking of the gaze of the soul that we're called to pursue in faith, Tozer writes in his book, Pursuit of God, faith is not a once-done act, but a continuous gaze of the heart at the triune God. Believing, then, is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It is the lifting of the mind before the uh, to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of of our lives. It's what we see in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? It's what we are invited to. The race that we are called to run, we are invited to do by casting off the sin and weight and doing what? 
fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not once as our Savior, but forever as our Lord. And running with our eyes on Him. And when we do that, we are allowed to strip from us all of these other things that are, that are weighing us down that shouldn't be there. Why? Because in light of who He is, that's nothing. And so we continuously fix the gaze of our soul. He's present. And so we focus on His presence. Tozer goes on to say, I don't want to leave the impression that the ordinary means of grace have no value. They most assuredly have. Private prayer should be practiced by every Christian. Long periods of Bible meditation will purify our gaze and direct it. Church attendance will enlarge our outlook and increase our love for others. Service and work and activity all are good and should be engaged by every Christian. But at the bottom of all these things, giving meaning to them will be the inward habit of beholding God. A new set of eyes, so to speak, will develop within us enabling us to be looking at God while our outward eyes are seeing the scenes of this passing world. May we continue to behold his presence every day throughout our day in a way that puts everything else in its proper context. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you more than we realize. We need you every moment of every day. We need you in the midst of every circumstance that we face. We are a people that pride ourselves in being able to carry that which we were never designed to hold. We are a people that look at ourselves as, as independent and capable, strong when we hold that which we were only made to bring to you, making us fools, making us truly weak. Because instead of going to that which makes us strong, we run from it. Father, I pray that your presence would permeate our lives, that it would permeate my life, that you would be more than a topic of conversation, that you would be more than a truth that we validate intellectually, but that you would be a reality that shapes our reality. That you would be something in our lives, that you would be the greatest something in our lives that we cannot walk around, that we cannot discredit, that we cannot minimize, or store away in a stuff or in a box marked stuff that we know. But God, I pray that your ever-present nature would cause us to look at who we are and how we live in such a way that causes us to want nothing more than to focus the gaze of our heart on you continuously. We need your grace. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to show us how to do that. And so I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.